Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of culture journals from throughout Europe and well beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners, journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga-Pop, and today I'm talking to Ranabir Samadar, Distinguished Chair in Migration and Forced Migration Studies at the Mahanirban Calcutta Research Group in Calcutta, India. He also was a visiting fellow earlier this year at Eurozine's longtime collaborator, the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna. But before we get to the conversation, let me draw your attention to Eurozine's freshly launched Patreon page, where you can support our work and get access to special giveaways and exclusive content. Eurozine has been offering quality journalism for free for over two decades now, and now we need our readers and listeners' help to muddle through a very tough time. Any amount helps, be it regular pledges via Patreon or one-time donations via PayPal or other means. Should you be a benevolent billionaire wishing to help quality online magazines sustain their work, for a joint European public sphere, please contact us directly. In any case, you can find all the relevant information on eurozine.com support. Thank you, and let's get into it. Ranabir Samadar, it's a pleasure to talk with you, even if we ended up discussing remotely. Let's start at the basics. Europe conceives of this most recent influx of Middle Eastern and North African refugees as a crisis. From the Isle of Lesbos to the Belarusian woods, this has been keeping politics and media in a frenzy for over half a decade now. Admittedly, we are living in a time of overlapping crises. COVID has been ravaging societies for almost two years now. The ecological turmoil is well upon us. Nevertheless, I do wonder, in and of itself, is migration a crisis? In 2015, an estimated 1 million people crossed into Europe. And as you know, newspapers, political leaders, everyone said it was the year of European migration crisis. After the Algerian war, 700,000 walked into France. After the Balkan wars, 500,000. These were not considered as crisis of the continent. At the same time, the moment Europe was assured that the entry of the new people can be managed at least partially through retraining, which would include linguistic training, and entry of the new migrants and refugees into the labor force of these countries in course of years, the sense of paranoia and the schizophrenic response of the political class lessened. Oh, you insist on framing the refugee question as an issue of labor force. You argue that the notion of refugees has for centuries been framed as a labor issue. It seems to be kind of counterintuitive at first sight, um, seemingly at odds with the 20th century human rights language. And yet you trace this discourse back to hundreds of years. Refugee flow as refugee flow is not a pure refugee flow. Refugee flows and migrant flows are all mixed, which is why even the UNHCR in 2009 
or 2008, I may be wrong about the exact year, agreed to adopt a term which many post-colonial researchers had been using from 2002-03, that present flows are mixed and massive flows. So refugees and migrants are lumped together, not merely by administrators or uh, the governing class, but the flows are much more mixed. This is relevant to the question of the entry of the migrants in the labor market, because that, that is how refugees and migrants will be managed. Even where camp refugees are being managed, the main line of management is that these camps should be seen as productive places. And refugees and migrants are not burdens of society, on society, the host society, but they are active, productive people. They should be drawn into the market. And there are various ways we can go into that. In case of migrant workers, the case is even more straight. In case of sex workers, it is straighter that how entering the labor market is the main question. I would conclude my remarks with this, that if you look into the global compacts of the one on the safe and orderly migration and the other on the protection and the millennium development goals, according to which protection of refugees can be calibrated, we may say that earlier refugees were visible in politics invisible in economy. Nowadays, in the neoliberal time, refugees and migrants will be visible in economy, but invisible in politics. Let me follow up on the issue of labor markets. You do mention that sex workers probably constitute the most straightforward case. Importantly, their integration into most labor markets doesn't require any or not substantial protections or labor rights for them, right? How does this provide such an exemplary case to study labor aspects of migration? The migrants and refugees coming into Europe or to United States, or for that matter, from South to South, which indeed accounts for the overwhelming part of migrant and refugee flows. Overwhelmingly, these migrants and refugees will work in the informal labor market. They will work in informal economy, which is increasing at a rapid pace throughout the world, even within the affluent countries. The present neoliberal world has done something which is giving a logistical reorientation to global economy, which needs all kinds of construction workers, workers in the supply chain. And these supply chains include supply of labor as commodity. The classic case is the whole uproar about truck drivers in Great Britain today. We have all heard of it. And supply chain is a phrase which we were not used to, let's say, two decades earlier. But it is today, this catchphrase is supposedly explaining everything. And it, as I said, it includes supply of men, women, children, everything. Now, in the case of sex workers, there was a European study which I referred to in my book, The Post-Colonial Age of Migration. If I'm not wrong, the study is done around 2014 or 15, which showed that around 60% of European sex workers come from non-European countries. And these sex workers, they are undocumented. They cannot be documented because the sex workers cannot continue with their work 
if they are to come under the radar of law. So they have to be below the radar of law. They, through their own work and the exigencies of life, will become the stateless people. And they are the stateless people. They have no way to go back, even though in certain cases it has been found that sex workers combine other modes of work for supporting their family. We have studied Nepali sex workers. But in all these cases, one thing is very clear. The door to return is closed. At the same time, the door to political enfranchisement is also closed in the country or the countries where they will continue with their work. Same is with informal nursing work of hundreds and thousands of Filipino nurses throughout the world. One can go on with examples, but what I am trying to suggest is that migrants and refugees, they are all surviving through their presence in the informal labor processes. The interesting thing and where I shall stop is that if you look into the global compacts, or let's say if you look into the what you, you may call the celebrity endorsement of refugee protection, you will see that everywhere what is being upheld as the satisfactory policy measure is that refugees and migrants are not burdens, they are fruitful economic agents, so they should be allowed or they should be enabled to participate in the market. And this is the route through which credit advances are made to refugees in the shanty settlements in different parts of Africa, in Turkey, in Jordan, in Bangladesh. And this is how refugees will be considered as productive economic agents. The Again, my concluding thing is that if you look at the, at the comparison between the way refugees and migrants were treated, let's say in 1951 when the Geneva Convention was made and the time today, we are discussing at that time refugees were seen as objects of protection. So Hannah Arendt's famous line that refugees do not have the rights to claim rights. So that was the line that we have to protect them. They don't have political protection. And economically, the global governance structure never thought that they were economically useful. They were to be given advance loans. Finally, they were to be returned to their countries of origin. And migrants would come, but they would be recorded. They would be proper laboring subjects. If you recall Stephen Castle's very famous first book, in fact, the one he wrote before the age of migration, which was form race and the formation of class structure, immigrants and the formation of class structure in Western Europe. Now, these are the studies which are based on formal labor regimes. What neoliberalism has done is unsettling these formal labor regimes with more emphasis on circulation, finance, credit and date games, where it has turned the table upside down and it has turned the table on the left also. The left has been defeated, therefore, because neoliberals say no one is an unproductive agent in this society. Even the last person on the frontier will also have access to market. Everyone will be a market enabled actor. So suppose I am an invalid. I should be provided bank loan so that I can do some work at home. The refugee at the refugee camp should be given some loan or some advance so that he or she can do some work. And what is the work? The work is typically informal, a cog in the wheel, which is called the supply chain. So I wouldn't 
you know, go more into that. All I'm therefore saying is that you come back to the question of visibility. It is your visibility that enables you to get protection. It is your presence on the street that allows you to reach the ears of the people who govern the political class. What happens when you are visible in economy, but invisible in politics? But this also presumes that whoever is not productive in this system is never welcome, right? Nobody seems to make the argument in favor of non-productive people. It depends on how you define, because clearly you cannot be an artist if your art doesn't fetch value. So you have music industry, you have art industry. Think of any conceivable human ability which will not be turned into a marketable product in this world. In fact, neoliberalism has gone unimaginably ahead in marketizing the world. So the kind of dilemmas, let's say, that Rosa Luxemburg and others confronted, that what happens to a world where half of the world is, let us say, non-capitalist, therefore non-productive of surplus value. When I say productive, it means productive in the eyes of the market. Is your presence worth in terms of the market? Do you do something that fetches value in the market? So this is where neoliberalism has changed the entire world where, as I said, each and every conceivable thing is meaningful to market. And therefore, this present emphasis on extraction, your hair, your skin, your body color, your physical quality, your sound, your uh, other kinds of uh, embodiments, or the water, the air, think of the, the, the wavelength, think of everything or anything, you will see that this has now been turned into something that can be extracted. So you are not extracting only the subsoil thing, you are extracting from air and everything. So this is where refugees and migrants, their bodies become so important. And as I indicated, this is a throwback to the 19th century. Once you see how refugees and migrants are dealt with today, clearly the liberal phase or the high noon of liberal phase of democracy and capitalism from let us say 1920s, 30s to the end of the last century, high rise of welfare capitalism, that seems to be now a dream phase, which is clearly over. And you have now a phase where each and every one will be considered in terms of the endowments that uh, that one has and which is why the body of the refugee the body of the migrant how strong he or she is whether he or she can survive the perils of a unruly labor market has become so important we saw the international uproar about afghanistan's very rapid and very predictable taliban takeover we have watched the newsreels about people trying to climb up overcrowded planes falling and dying in front of a camera. It's also very specific perversity of Western media being so ready to offer images of people of color dying. Nevertheless, I do wonder how the case of Afghanistan with the aforementioned overlapping crises and the heritage of centuries of collapses induced by external political forces fits into your theoretical framework. Does the international community not give a damn about Afghanistan simply because what could have been monetized has already been monetized from it? Or is there another specific reason? 
I think it's a very significant question. And I must add something and I must confess that I did not at all uh, bring it into discussion because uh, there was, I mean, the scope had not arisen. But I, I thank you for raising this because Afghanistan brings in one dimension that we had not discussed. And if we say that the refugee and migrant question is essentially a post-colonial question, which does not mean only third world, but even within the first world, the post-colony is there. There will be one region which will be labor receiving and there will be other regions which will be labor sending, even within Europe or globally. Then a factor that exacerbates the geoeconomic and geopolitical map of labor globally is war. Now, think of the irony and the paradox that Afghanistan, for the last 20 years, there had been refugees and refugees with much more number than the refugees who could escape Afghanistan after August 15. Much more. And there are judgments, including British court judgments, where Afghan asylum seekers had been denied asylum on the ground that escape from Afghanistan is not something unusual. Afghanistan in any case is a country that features permanent anarchy. And therefore, that famous Article 1 of the Refugee Convention, where it is said that either you must come out due to fear or due to violence, either violence or fear of violence. It has to be exceptional. But in Afghanistan, force, violence, anarchy, all these were considered as normal. And therefore, you didn't see that kind of uproar in the global media that you saw in the wake of the American withdrawal. Now, that brings in, first of all, the question of war, that what you see in Syria or take the, it's simply a kind of an arc from the eastern part of the Balkans to Afghanistan, maybe through the Himalayas, which has already spread to Burma, that this is a long arc which is marked by war for the last 30 years. And war has historically been, I'm not saying this is as a kind of an overriding explanation, but just to remind ourselves of the fact that war has historically been the supplier of migrant and refugee labor through centuries. Nothing special today. In case of Afghanistan, what is interesting, apart from the fact that you pointed out that people who are trying to flee Afghanistan, the, the country, and that was highlighted. It seems that the refugee has suddenly become kind of the empire's excuse in case of Afghanistan. This is not to say that Afghanistan is not producing refugees and migrants. You visit any big city of the developed countries uh, or countries of uh, the capitalist world, you will see Afghan labor, taxi drivers, fruit sellers, vendors of all kinds, all by and large, as I said, absorbed into the informal labor market. You will not see refugee camps only with Afghan refugees. You, not that you will not see, but you will see very rarely. There are eminent European researchers who have worked on the Afghan refugees and who have written uh, a lot on that. And they are very, very good friend of mine. Uh, those who have worked on in the Afghan uh, settlements near Calais uh, or in other areas. Uh, and almost all critical researchers 
are one on this that Afghans have been at the receiving point of extreme neglect in the last 20 years. What causes then this sudden attention to the refugee question? Even though the total number of refugees this time was much less, much, much less. Think of Iran, which has hosted for over two decades, the low figure being half a million to the high figure being more than one million. Think of Pakistan. Again, the low figure being 300 to 400,000 to today probably 1.3 million. In Iran, at least you can say governments had been spending money on protecting and keeping the Afghan refugees alive and they were being allowed to take up jobs. But in Pakistan, I have written on that, the entire cab driving, truck driving, transporting goods, all those were being managed by Afghan drivers. So again, the, the question of how Afghans have survived. Now, if you think of the refugee question, countries which are which have shed so much tears on Afghanistan, why just why don't they throw open their borders to Afghan refugees? Particularly Afghan women, where where again I do not know whether this falls within the ambit of the discussion. The trajectory of Afghan women's movement, the temporary alliance at one point of time of Afghan women communists with Soviet occupation, now having its later had its mirror image with liberal feminists of Afghanistan joining hands with the occupation regime of the Americans. As a result, women's movement in Afghanistan, and this was much more advanced than the women's movement in Iran in the 70s. And today, in the broader Afghan society, and this is one of the most unfortunate part, uh, part of the refugee question also, that the refugee question, the women's question, the land question, the question of ecology, all these, I mean, that is the real crisis where you can say that several crises have met at this point of time. And I would end with this, that you have several wars, therefore, going on or that went on, and we do not know, probably, we are seeing an end to one phase. And I will end with uh, very brief remarks on that. First of all, you had the war against the foreign occupation, which ended with convincing victory of the Taliban's and the defeat of the Americans. You have also the disenchantment of the ordinary Americans with wars abroad. So it's not that Biden had many choices. He did what was wisest for him or for the Americans, withdraw. You have war against the women also. So there is a gender war going on. But you have war also against the civil society and the rest of the society. And the civil society is mostly fed off the occupation regime. They were mostly NGOs. Banks were supplied with money from outside. Jobs were supplied with money from outside. The entire money market was possible only with external aid. And foreign occupation had ended completely Afghan economy. So it is here where any kind of quote-unquote nationalist response became unfortunately, first of all, anti-women, inasmuch as it was anti-occupation, it was anti-imperial, anti-colonial, and also anti-civil society. So you have, therefore, a war of an emerging nation with all the, how would I put it, I do not want to sound cynic, but let's say all the high-held values of liberalism. And at the same time, you are seeing, you are witnessing an emergence of public power without which no nation can emerge, 
Therefore, you may say that through a rather convoluted route, finally, you may say that we are witnessing the end of the great game, that Afghanistan finally will come of itself, come into itself where the next phase of social struggles will begin. But that all social struggles have not ended satisfactorily does not mean that Afghanistan could have tolerated foreign occupation any longer. Refugee question is unfortunately the product of these many wars, not simply one war, but several wars. On many occasions, you have pointed out that Europe and probably also the US, but specifically Europe, is extremely self-involved when it comes to discussing refugees. You have also mentioned earlier in this conversation that the surprising amount of whining about much fewer refugees, actually, than the post-colonial world is very used to experiencing and taking in. And yet it's somehow considered a sort of natural state of game for the post-colonial world, and only a fraction of which is already considered horrific for, let's use this very problematic term for now, for the first world. How can this then be contrasted with the demographic crisis of the first world? I mean, however we read it, but you have pointed out that there's a permanent need for the influx of labor and a strong political will to stop the very same influx, right? The end of the contest is to somehow deny protections and power from labor force. At least that's the one thing I see. Basically, it's pitching migrant workforce against whatever is perceived as domestic workforce, substituting this conflict in place of the real tension with, let's say, capital, right? Is there a resolution to this contradiction or will this oxymoron inevitably have to implode politically? Thank you for articulating the paradox in such a clear manner. And I think that the situation is paradoxical. I do not see a solution to this. I mean, there is no demography in the sense, there is no demography pure by itself. Demography, demography is something which is always related to our idea and the actuality of the resources, etc., etc. So, I mean, it's not that we should not, we have to abjure the term. But clearly something is happening which lends force to this notion of the crisis. Apart from the fact that in the idea of the crisis and in the moment of the crisis, it's not merely an idea, but a moment of the crisis in which you have what you may call a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that once you are in a crisis or you and you think that you are caught in a crisis, you continuously do things that accelerate the crisis. So you have a double movement of time on one hand a secular time, but at the same time, you also have, it's a kind of a diachronic thing that you have within that time, another time, which has paced itself up and therefore speeding up the likely outcome. The reason why I'm saying so is that Europe could have, or perhaps Angela Merkel wanted, so some sections of the European class, political class, may have realized or had realized only half that it's futile to cry wolf. Better that we realize how to manage migration in a wise way, which would mean not only orderly migration or migration quotas, but also see that if this is what is going to be, let's say in the next 10 or 20 years, 
how do we manage it do we give money not only to turkey but let us say to today what we are hearing about belarus or you know like there i mean we all know you know or giving money to the north african countries or uh, trying to give assistance to these regions so that migrants do not come or provide jobs etc meaning that migration management has to be much more flexible and it cannot simply be quota based and skilled labor because european economy also realizes that as i said the secular need of having an informal labor market is essential now whether that would come from eastern europe or from turkey or from the war zones of syria and iraq kurdistan afghanistan so as i said or from certain conflict zones of africa where you can see that war labor economy and refugee and migration management they are actually parts of a much messy scenario now while this could have been done or may still be done and not simply think in terms of strict border management kind of a cordon sanitaire etc whatever is being done uh, europe may could have thought over it at the same time that europe is unable to do it is increasing the pace of quote and unquote the doom i am not saying it's a doom but i am saying quote and unquote the doom which europe perceives as a doom which is avoiding the destiny that let us say rome had imperial rome had by the 7th or 8th century with the arrival of uh, you know goths and all that interestingly from the demographic point of view what you see is typically the tip of the iceberg because we have to admit that a huge mass of population it's like the tip of the iceberg moving or pressing on europe from two sides one from the southern side which is on the other from the other side of the mediterranean trying to press ahead and from the what i have described as the war fields on the east again you will find that a large population shift is taking place and this population shift has to be compared and i think they can be compared with the population shifts that europe underwent in the 16th 17th century and to some extent in the 19th century the stability that europe witnessed in terms of population which led to its decline and which everywhere will lead to population decline once the country becomes stable or the region becomes stable in terms of economy and politics will be what europe witnessed japan witnessed you know it's it has happened almost everywhere now in the 16th or 17th century particularly 17th century if you allow me think of the massive migration from europe england in particular to what they we would call later the new england with which the tobacco plantations uh, the coffee plantations in jamaica and elsewhere began i mean you think of shakespeare tempest and shakespeare alluded shakespeare was in fact a shareholder of a company that uh, used to uh, take merchandise across the atlantic and the atlantic trade was trade of people first slavery came only in the wake of that so population shift is not something i can rule out i think that there is a much more secular trend in what is happening to europe in the last 7 to 10 years that a massive tectonic shift is happening which as i said happened in the 17th century europe and continued up to the mid 19th century let us think of the polish the irish the german massive population shift to united states australia you can name country after country which 
have taken their present shape because of the population shifts. And Europe being actually for, and this is where I shall end, Europe being actually through a long history, the peninsula of a larger continent called Eurasia. I am not surprised that population shifts, the early signs of a massive shift are seen today. If the ruling class understands it, wisdom will lead to much more accommodative and much more prudent strategies and probably Europe would gain much more through the population shifts. But on the other hand, if the ruling class thinks as obstinately it is thinking that this can be arrested with flames all around on the eastern war fields and oil fields and uh, the southern fields uh, across the Mediterranean, it will be an all-pervasive sense of doom. So, as I said, the crisis that speeds up actually brings the point of implosion, as you said, nearer. Well, that sounds daunting, but I can't really blame you for that. I understand you're another type of person to write political self-help handbooks, and yet, you know, I do have a more practical question. It seems there is a huge disconnect between public discourse and the humanities in the past few decades. This happens despite that cultural anthropology, intercultural research, loads of arms of political science and more, many more disciplines deal directly with these most burning issues of, simply put, how to live together in peace. Do you see a way of integrating the enormous body of knowledge accumulated in the fields of humanities into politics and with public discourse and public policy so that it could actually inform decisions and practices? Currently, it seems that most decision-making relies more on commercial opinion polls than any relevant academic discipline. The world deserves it, meaning opinion polls. I mean, it gets what it deserves. <laughs> if, you know, if Florence got Machiavelli, and the Elizabeth in England got Bacon or Great Britain got Keynes. So today you get opinion polls. Uh, so much for our, you know, illustrious predecessors. The state or the public power will have the necessity, will be required to feed off the society. The state thinks it doesn't need the knowledge of the society. It still thinks that, as you pointed out, that opinion polls are enough or hack writers producing 20 pages pamphlets should be good enough. But that situation changes also. And uh, uh, historians, I mean, particularly, the more we are engrossed with contemporary time, the more historians will be called back to service. Not in the sense of saying, tell us what happened in 16th century or in 14th century, but simply historians, I mean, to use Foucault's famous term that he borrowed from Nietzsche, that historians will be rather much more inspired with genealogical insights, the insights that the present gives the historian to write of the past. And in that sense, to uh, conclude my remark, that there is something called, you may call the future anterior, that as you want to look into the future, like the policy world wants to do, which is very good, that if you want to look into the future, the more you want to look into the future, the more you are thrown back to the past to see what happened. So in some sense, it is like Adorno's, you know, negative dialectics. 
the more you want to see what you can do for a better future, the more you will be led to study what happened in the past and how you were coping with the uncertain times of today. Well, that is our time. Thank you for the conversation. Special thanks to Daho Jerbal from Yurzin's Algerian associate NAQD, who introduced us and suggested this interview. Thank you, Daho. You've been listening to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of culture journals from throughout Europe and well beyond. You can find online lectures by Ranabir Samadar on the YouTube channel of the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us, and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our newsletter so you will always know what's worth thinking about. And again, let me draw your attention to Eurozine's freshly launched Patreon page, where you can support our work and get access to special giveaways and exclusive content. Eurozine has been offering quality culture journalism for free for over two decades now, and now we need our readers and listeners' help to muddle through a very tough time. Any amount helps, be it regular pledges via Patreon, or one-time donations through PayPal or other means. Should you be a benevolent billionaire or a philanthropic institution wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for a joint European public sphere, you can also contact us directly. You can find all the relevant information on eurozine.com support. I've been Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.